Thank you for joining us for another episode of EK On The Go. Many of our listeners have moved to the Pacific Northwest, whether recently or many years ago, due to great jobs combined with our region's remarkable natural beauty. In our last episode, we explored how locally sourced natural materials, like wood, inform the vision of Seattle architect Chris Patano, whose mission is to connect buildings with a landscape through the Pacific Northwest and beyond. But the landscape that surrounds and nurtures us is also at risk of changing and disappearing, mostly due to development of housing, which is a function of the region's economic prosperity. So today we're going to meet with Christine Mahler, Executive Director of the independent nonprofit organization, the Washington Wildlife and Recreation Coalition, which lobbies local and state governments to protect and preserve a variety of Pacific Northwest landscapes. Christine's organization requests funding from the state of Washington's budget through the Washington Wildlife Recreation Program, ensuring strong bipartisan support before these bills arrive at the state legislature. It seems that people of all political perspectives agree that the great outdoors are worth preserving and protecting. The coalition lobbies the legislature biannually, fulfilling a role that grant applicants, typically local, state, and nonprofit agencies, are prohibited by law from doing. So if you live somewhere near Washington State, or if you've ever enjoyed visiting a farm, taking your kids to a pocket park or playground, explored a waterway, or hiked through forest land, there's a good chance that Christine's organization had a role in creating, protecting, or extending it. So today we're going to explore why we all seem to agree that investing in nature is valuable, and how valuing natural spaces defines us as a people maybe here in the Pacific Northwest compared to other areas. We'll learn about some of the people in our communities who have worked to protect open spaces and are doing it now. And we'll highlight hopefully several surprising and fun natural escapes that are located quite close here in our backyard and maybe learn how we can visit them from Christine. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. So is there anything that I left out in terms of the overview of the coalition or any errors, anything you want to clarify? So I think one thing I would note is we're a very broad coalition. We work hard to make sure it's bipartisan and that we're working with both sides of the aisle, because as you mentioned, you know, it is something that, you know, the left and right, Democrat and Republicans, you know, we all love the outdoors. That's part of being in Washington. Um, so we work very hard at that. But it's also a unique coalition in that we bring together so many different perspectives. It's not often that you get somebody from the Sierra Club and a timber executive and, you know, Evergreen Mountain Bike Alliance and hunters in the same room saying, we all agree that this one thing is important. Um, but that's one of the really unique things about this program and about the coalition. And then where do the monies come that support the coalition itself? So the coalition is a, as you mentioned, an independent 501c3 nonprofit. Um, so we don't actually get any of the funding that we advocate in the legislature for. That all goes through the WWRP. Instead, we're funded by, um, you know, the typical things for nonprofits, you know, individual donors, uh, foundation support, corporations. We've been blessed to have a longstanding relationship with you know, REI and some of those other companies here in Washington. But we're actually a, a small but mighty organization. We're only about a $400,000 budget. But over the last 30 years of the program, it's been a 100 to 1 return on investment for, you know, for the coalition's budget versus what we've been able to leverage. And it looks like you're supported both by big business and labor organizations. Exactly. Yes, yeah. that was um, something that was very uh, conscious when we were first founded. Then Congressman Lowry uh, was one of our founding co-chairs. 
And as uh, longtime Washington folks will know, he was very much on the labor side of things. But he was paired with then former Governor Evans, who is on the conservative side. He's a Republican. So bringing those two perspectives together was, as I mentioned, a very conscious thing and brought those different sides of the aisle together. Okay, so now you grew up in Montana? Yes, I did. Where in Montana? In Missoula. In Missoula. Can you describe your childhood? Oh, my childhood, I was very privileged and lucky with my childhood. You know, growing up in Missoula, we spent a lot of time outdoors, uh, camping every summer, horseback riding. I was on the back of a horse before I could even walk. Um, So spent a lot of time just, you know, out on trails and enjoying it. And it was always something that was part of who I was. And so no matter where I moved and lived, you know, I was always, you know, finding those hiking trails. And is your family back in Missoula or yep. sibling? Uh, yep. My my mom and her side of the family is still all mostly all in Montana. Um, I do have a sister up in Anacortes, which is nice to have somebody a little closer as well. How did you move into political advocacy? What's your journey here? Um, so I had a little bit of a roundabout way to get here. You know, after school, I decided I wanted to get into international affairs. Um, How does one get from international affairs to natural resources? (laughs) Um, Well, I spent about a decade out in Washington, D.C., the other Washington, and started my career in foreign policy, working at a nonprofit think tank out there. So really combining kind of that foreign policy with policy work. But I was also in fundraising and, you know, on the nonprofit side of things. So it was really kind of a nexus of those things. When it was time to move on from that, I moved more in just the nonprofit direction. I worked for actually a money and politics reform organization and um, veterans financial support organization and realized I really enjoyed nonprofit work, but I didn't need to be in D.C. to do nonprofit work. (laughs) And if I was going to move away from international affairs, which I was, then, you know, I wanted to get back to the Northwest. And Seattle was a natural fit for me. Um, Being from Missoula, you know, there's a very inherent tie with Washington. It's very similar to Spokane. And so there's a lot of ties there. A lot of folks from Missoula head to Seattle and Spokane. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was, you know, a natural fit for me having lived that urban lifestyle and enjoyed the things that come with that, but getting back to those Northwest roots. So when I uh, had the opportunity with the coalition, I started out as their fundraising director and moved into the executive director role. It was Really, it was a coming home moment, uh, both, you know, in terms of the geography, but also in terms of my passions. As I told them in the interview, I always believed in the missions that I worked for. It's really hard to fundraise and lead things if you don't. But this was really, you know, core to who I was. Awesome. A bit of a tangent, but, you know, this week, Deb Hallen was just sworn in as a Secretary of the Interior, um, a Laguna Pueblo member and a woman. And I'm just kind of curious, as someone who's in the profession of natural resources, what your take is on that sort of shift on the federal level. Granted, you work here locally. I am extremely excited by Deb Holland's confirmation. She, um, I'm excited to see what she does as, especially bringing her native identity to, you know, that to the Department of the Interior, being the first native person in any cabinet position, but especially in one that's so important for tribes and for our national government's relationship with the tribes. I think it sets a lot of expectations for her and I don't think she can fulfill all of them. And it's a balancing act for her because I know many tribes actually benefit from natural resource extraction. And so they want those rights, whereas others want them limited. So 
it's going to be a tough um, thing for her to do. And I think the expectations are even higher for her than they would be, you know, for others. I'm sure they're higher for her than they were for Sally Jewell, for example. Um, But I'm really excited to see her bring that perspective to things. Awesome. Did you bring a physical object in to share with us? I did. It is a clay imprint of actually my late father's fingerprint. You know, family is very meaningful for me. Um, and, you know, those memories of, you know, the outdoor experiences with my father. So this is what I decided to bring. It's beautiful. Thank yeah, you. There it is right in your pocket. Yep. Yeah. So let's focus locally here. One of the WWRP's kind of focuses is urban wildlife habitat. And there are like 12 project categories. Can you just run us through what those are? I'd like to single out a few of them. Yep, absolutely. So as you mentioned, there are 12 categories and they're divided up into kind of three buckets. There's the recreation side of things, there's the habitat, and then there's working lands. So in recreation, there's local parks, which are, you know, everything from soccer fields and baseball fields to, you know, traditional playground type settings. There's also trails, state parks, and then water access. So that's kind of the typical recreation categories. And then they're in habitat lands. There's, as you mentioned, urban wildlife habitat, which really brings kind of that recreation and wildlife habitat together um, in urban areas, as well as state lands uh, restoration and development. And, you know, really focused on how can we acquire and um, maintain state lands best. And there's a couple of categories in there for the state lands, um, as well as riparian-focused categories. And by acquire state lands, it means, are you talking about acquiring land for to add to state lands? There's both. So there's state lands acquisition. So that is buying of lands to add to existing state lands databases. And so those can be, you know, various natural resource agencies do that, you know, Department of Natural Resources, uh, Department of Fish and Wildlife, as well as state parks also do some work in that area. But there's also um, a category for restoration. And so one that will be especially meaningful to folks uh, in Washington right now is, you know, they can use those funds for wildfire restoration, um, which certainly is a topic at the top of our list right now. Um, And then there's also riparian area protection. And that's both, to some extent, upland areas, so to have those impact streams um, and waterways, as well as, you know, right down to ocean waterfront and restoring that. Right now, a large focus of that, of course, is on salmon habitat. And then on the working lands, um, that's a smaller uh, portion of it, but it's really to keep uh, working lands working here in Washington and to help that happen um, and to help it happen in an environmentally friendly way. Um, So those provide easements on working lands to keep them working and to remove the uh, development rights from them. Uh, And so those are for both farm and ranch lands as well as for timberlands. Gotcha. Well, for the first part of our podcast, I'd like to talk about urban wildlife. A lot of our audience are urbanites, and so I wanted to understand what is urban wildlife? You know, what is the definition? In general, the idea is, you know, we recognize that there is an interplay between humans and nature, even in urban areas, and that there are little pockets that have been kept green, um, whether simply because they're not, you know, amenable to development necessarily. Sometimes those hillsides are, you know, impossible to build on. 
But we've also learned, especially over the last 30 years, that they're so important for habitat, for bird flyways so that they can migrate properly, for, you know, smaller critters that we're not necessarily thinking about day in and day out, but that still live in these urban environments. So making sure that they have habitat where they can thrive. And, you know, we've learned the importance of, you know, riparian areas as they move through urban environments and how important those are for salmon. So, you know, it's one of those interplays where we've realized the importance of these areas for animals and for plants and for our native species, but also for humans, because that's really where a lot of, you know, especially here in Seattle, a lot of people, that is nature to them. You know, they might not go into the backcountry or, you know, have experienced the Palouse Prairie, but, you know, walking through their local park that has this, you know, natural area, that is nature to them. And it really provides kind of that accessible place where they can go and learn and just, you know, have the peace that nature brings to us as well. And the other really nice part about these, especially here in Seattle, is it's oftentimes a resource for schools um, where they can get the kids out onto the land and be learning with hands, you know, in the water rather than just in theory. Gotcha. So for urban wildlife, you know, some of the funding that's occurred, can you give like an example of maybe a really big project and then a really, really tiny one? Because I'm interested in like this whispering ferns bog. It was just four parcels of land on Vashon Island that were like $30,000 was contributed. So really tiny pieces of land are, you know, funded and yeah, you know. so it, it can vary significantly. Um, so the emphasis on the urban wildlife category is that the property has to be within a certain distance of an urban growth boundary. And so it's really, you know, trying to keep that nature close to home, close to uh, natural spaces, which we've also realized in the last year is especially important to have those resources. One, I'm not sure about the size of this project, but it's one I'm very familiar with because it's one that I walk in most days. But the Longfellow Creek Greenway in West Seattle, uh, it runs along kind of the Delridge Corridor right through the heart of West Seattle. And there's been a couple of acquisitions or, you know, they've bought land to add to those as, you know, it's always a willing seller. It's not the state or government's, you know, stealing land. It's always buying it when it comes on the market. But as we know, you know, property prices in Seattle are booming. Right. Um, So even a small parcel of land is expensive. So it's especially important when those come up to be able to add those to such greenways. And that one's especially interesting because that uh, Longfellow Creek is actually a salmon-bearing stream Mm. um, right here in Seattle. And they're trying to do a lot of restoration work there through the Delridge Community Association. So it's really an exciting project to see growing. So there's this incrementalism. There's these little tiny pockets of nature. There's value, it seems like, if they're strung together because certain types of wildlife prefer more habitat, right? Exactly. But there's a tension there because these are the last, some of them are last little pockets where they're too expensive to develop into housing. But now that the housing prices are so high, they become more feasible yep. to be developed into housing. Exactly. And so it's a matter of sort of timing and who's going to be there to purchase yep. it, right? Yes. And that's one of the reasons why having this reliable source of funding is so important so that communities can count on the fact that there is going to be funding through this grant program every two years. 
it's competitive. They might or might not actually get the funding. You know, it's it's based on how good of a project they have. But just knowing that that resource is going to be there rather than, you know, having to try and get funding one off every time it comes around. So you walk or jog in this area? Yes. Yep. It's just, it's uh, about two blocks from where I live um, on Del Ridge. And it's, especially during the last year, it's been so important for me just to have those, you know, daily breaks <laughs> to get out. And, you know, there's beavers that are active in there. So watching them develop their dams, I've, I've yet to actually see one, but I have seen their handiwork. And really just, you know, I've spent a lot more time in the last year just kind of watching nature and, you know, really appreciating just watching the flowers as, you know, they bud and then bloom and then, you know, through the fall, um, watching the leaves fall and then waiting for them to bud again this year. Um, It's been really important to my mental health through the COVID crisis. What about like Washington? So that's kind of a a touchstone for everyone in the whole area, Mm -hmm. whether, you know, from Renton to Kenmore. Um, Any projects sort of that enjoy sort of the shoreline of Lake Washington that come to mind that have been funded? Yes. So there, there's been a couple. Um, I'm not sure if they were urban wildlife habitat projects, but I do know there, there were some water access projects as well um, that help with the um, getting folks to actually have public access. Um, I know there's one of those over um, in the Bellevue area. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the project right now, but it's not coming to um, mind. But I do know, you know, some of the water access over in Bellevue is thanks to that. I saw this arrowhead um, thing over near St. Edward's Park. On your website, it was adjacent to the St. Edward's Park. But what was amazing was that when I read through not just this, but all the projects, the inventory of wildlife, Mm -hmm. because, I mean, we go running through St. Edward's Park, but there's weasels, bobcats, otters, mountain beavers, pileated woodpeckers. So it's just, it's fascinating the amount of nature, including fauna. Yep that kind of share these spaces and they're really close to us. Absolutely. And that most people don't even recognize they're there and, you know, the importance of them to, you know, maintaining our waterways as well and to maintaining our habitats. Um, You know, the interplay between humans and animals, I I think most humans don't realize that they're there and doing that work, but it's really important for us. And then there's also, I remember a few years back, or it was maybe two years ago, there was a jogger that was a te- was killed by a cougar, um, I think Tiger Mountain. Yep, a mountain biker. Ma- a mountain biker. And so it's real. I mean, there are these natural areas that we are going into where sometimes the animals have, yep. you know, can play a dominant role. And Yeah. And it, it's, it's rare. I think that was the first one in 100 years and anywhere in the Northwest. Um, but, you know, they are there. And, you know, we have bears up uh, Tiger Mountain and Cougar Mountain as well. You might not see them as you're hi- hiking Mount Sai, but knowing they're there and, you know, respecting their role is important. So in Tacoma, where I grew up, there's a Wapato Hills Habitat Area, 23 acres, and but the goal is to add it to 80 acres. But it was a historical site in the Mazama Pocket Gopher. And the weird thing is it's right by the Tacoma Mall. So it's so weird to put all those things together in the same sentence. Yes. To really recognize, you know, what we've done to habitat as well and to preserve the areas where we can, I think is really important. So and then the Illahi Forest Preserve, which we were talking about. So my parents have just been involved through their, you know, the last 25 years kind of with this community group. But it's fascinating when I looked into kind of their involvement, there's been like a 50-year history. So there were other generations of people prior. And this was state land that was set aside for schools. Mm-hmm. So it seems like in urban areas, those areas are sort of naturally wooded, right? It was designed for timber harvesting. Yes. You know, what's the story with those areas? Because it seems like they're very large, contiguous areas of nature. Yes. 
Um, so there's many examples of that kind of thing around the greater Seattle area. I think it's important to recognize, you know, the Department of Natural Resources, they manage our natural resources for our schools. It's a public trust element. So their mission is, you know, sustainable timber harvest, which is often a challenge for many Washingtonians to embrace. Um, and whether or not that's the best model for our school funding is a whole nother debate. Well, it seems like a, a, it's a legacy from the 19th century. Yes, very much so. When this land was plentiful and, you know, a certain percentage of it was dedicated for schools. Yep, exactly. But it seems like a obsolescent, you know, just there are other ways to harvest timber, you know, the same quantity of timber in other areas. But yeah, yeah. I know they're looking at what models make most sense. Um, but, you know, if you think about, you know, Mount Sai, that is actually managed by the Department of Natural Resources, huh. Tiger Mountain, those areas. It's primarily for recreation purposes now. But those were actually acquired through the WWRP, um, those lands initially, because they were timber lands. Huh. Um, so they were owned by timber companies, acquired due to grants from this grant program to maintain them as public lands and as hiking resources. I mean, if you've hiked Tiger Mountain or, you know, Mount Sai, just imagining those to be, you know, can you imagine the property developments that would be there sure. today if those hadn't been preserved? So, and then in the case of, say, Mount Sai, then can you walk us through what the process was mm -hmm. into preservation from strictly a natural resource for Absolutely. You know, so extraction? I don't know all the details, um, but I do know there was an acquisition that was um, through the first round of the WWRP. It was initially actually envisioned as a one-time bond initiative. So they came up with a list of, you know, here's some really important things that are available right now that we can buy and preserve. About when was that? That was in 1990. Gotcha. And so land on Mount Sai was one of those projects where they were like, this is an important touchstone for, you know, Seattleites, for Washington. We can't, you know, let this go to be a development. And I do believe it was more or less the entire east slope of Mount Sai, if I recall correctly. And it was, you know, timber lands that were up for sale that, you know, could go to a developer or could go to state lands. Um, and so through the efforts of the coalition, through the lobbying work and through the bipartisan support they built with um, Governor Evans and Lowry, they were able to take, you know, a one-time bond effort and morph it into a permanent grant program. And so this is one of those that has been a process over time. Um, you know, as land would come available, they would use this grant program to purchase it. Um, so it's that consistent funding and that opportunity over time to be able to take advantage of it. And the purchase price, as you said earlier, has to be like the market rate of the property. It's not a taking of the property in this case exactly. from the state, yep. but it's, it's just it's, a market rate purchase. Yep. How it, do you arrive at the value of that? Is it the value for development? You know, I guess you would look at the highest and best use of the land from an economic perspective. The sellers are always happy to sell, right? They're exactly. Kind of, yeah. Yep. There's no um, taking of the land. There's no forcing them to pay a lower rate. So it's it's a willing seller, willing buyer. There are times where the landowner actually donates the land. Sometimes that is done, especially if they want to be doing some development on the land, building a trail or a trailhead. So sometimes there's a situation uh, where the landowner goes, I want this land to be preserved. I'll donate it. And that's actually used as a match towards some of the development costs as well. Gotcha. Let's talk about these working lands, mm -hmm. particularly farmland. So there's these urban areas where the development and density around them has made these areas that for willy-nilly, they've been preserved more naturally. And so they become really valuable because they're scarce mm -hmm. and they're an amenity. 
But then there's these farms that where the landscape has been completely changed into a workplace, right? A business mm-hmm. venture, but 100 years ago. But then there's a general consensus that those places are also worth preserving. There's jobs and what are the dynamics there and how are they distinct? You know, you know, why do people want to preserve farmland? It doesn't create that many jobs. It's sort of far away from urban centers. But what's the kind of onus there? So I think first and foremost, without farms, we don't have food. They're an important part of our culture writ large um, to ensure that, you know, we have those farms um, and that we have that food coming. You know, there are the larger scale agricultural producers that, you know, we aren't necessarily eating all of the corn they're producing. Sometimes that's going uh, towards fodder and other things. But, you know, I think all of us Seattleites also appreciate the ability to get local fresh produce. I know I certainly do. I just signed up for my annual CSA. Yeah. So without, you know, preserving that farmland, it's impossible to get local fresh produce. Um, so I think that's definitely one of the primary things that is a benefit in my mind, at least. And then why does it need to be protected as opposed to large corporate agriculture? You know, what are the factors there that mm-hmm. require that, you know, this type of farmland be protected? So oftentimes it's not necessarily a question of is it going to be a small family farm or a large corporate one, but more is it going to be a family farm or a subdivision. Gotcha. Uh, and so that's a lot of times where they're preserving farmland and they're they're just buying up. The, it's usually done through um, what's called a conservation easement, which is buying the development rights off of the land so that it won't be ever become a subdivision, which decreases land value uh, and allows the um, farmers to, you know, oftentimes it's, you know, a retiring farmer who's, you know, done and wanting to sell the land. So it will allow younger farmers who oftentimes don't have, you know, that base to work from to actually buy the land at a reduced price because those development rights are gone. And then the person who sold those rights has their retirement, whatever they were using that for. from Exactly. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. And these easements, are they perpetual? They. Yep. They are in perpetuity. And then how is that guaranteed? You know, just explain how that works. Um, So most of the working lands projects are done through nonprofit organizations called land trusts um, or through the State Conservation Commission. And so those organizations hold those conservation easements and ensure that they're um, managed in the future. Kind of they're like trustees of the easement? Exactly. So they hold the development rights as an organization and they work with the landowner to make sure that, you know, they're managing them in adherence with those. Well, good. So again, you know, like the case studies are fascinating. There's Bob's Corn and Pumpkin Farm, and it was five generations yep. of farmers in the Snohomish River Valley and under continuous ownership and production since the 1880s. Yep. Just amazing. There's also one uh, Reiner Farm up in Snohomish okay. uh, County up there. there. It's a young family, multi-generation had been working the farm, but they'd been renting it. And it was the particular parcel um, that they bought through this program was, um, it was cornfields that were used for fodder for their milk production. And they have, you know, the whole operation, but the person who owned that land that they'd been renting on wanted to retire and wanted to sell it. Um, And because Snohomish County, just like the Seattle, you know, greater part of the Seattle area, land properties were booming and it could have become a development. Um, But because they were able to work out an easement they worked with Washington Farmland Trust to manage that. Not only is that land staying in production and staying part of that family operation, but they've also partnered with the Tulalip tribe. 
and are working on waterfront restoration where the river comes through there to allow it to regain its natural flow and, you know, allowing flooding where flooding should naturally occur. So it's a really great partnership with state funding, enabling this nonprofit to help these farmers keep an operation, but to do it in an environmentally friendly way as well, um, and working with the local tribe to make sure that happens. And then are tribe supporters of the coalition, or what is the involvement of tribes in terms of dealing with these lands? Absolutely. So tribes are, first and foremost, one of the eligible applicants for grant support. Um, so several tribes are active grant recipients, whether it's for, you know, water work, local parks. I know you've visited Swadabs Park. Yeah. Um, and so that was actually through the tribe. Um, they were the applicant and they developed that park. And for our listeners, that was that instigated my reaching out to Christine as to be a guest on our podcast because my wife and children are Native. We go to Native places and the Swinomish tribe is a place where she worked. And then there's this amazing Swadabs Park. If you haven't been there, it's totally worth it to go. But it has a complex series of just uh, sort of along the, the this channel, the Swinomish channel, these different amenities that are recreational benefits for tribal members and others. But there's this little park, which the coalition, I believe, provided funding for, which is made out of, it's a just a kid's playground, but it's made out of all this really cool kind of driftwood. It's a playground like you've never seen before. Absolutely beautiful, kind of very natural. And then that was part of a, a wetland restoration, a riparian mm-hmm. restoration project. So any other comments on that, just because it's such a cool place? Um, what I really appreciate about that project, and I think many local parks are moving in this direction, but really bringing in kind of the cultural aspects into the playground as well, taking note of, you know, bringing a sense of place into the playground as well. It's not just, you know, a hulk of, you know, a gymnasium of metal and plastic. All the materials um, look, could have come right out of the channel. Exactly. You know, and they're all natural. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, building in that, um, you know, sense of place and, you know, the cultural aspects to it. And I really appreciate that more, you know, parks are going that way. It's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Any other examples of kind of working lands? Um, I just had pulled a Tease Ranch. There's Mathau Valley farmlands. Apparently there's like a long history of conservation easements kind of in that area. Yeah. In Okanagan, there's an Angus Ranch. One that might be familiar to uh, many of our Seattle area listeners, um, especially if you are a fan of cider, uh, Finn River Farms and Cidery. Um, huh. They're over on the peninsula, um, but they do distribute to this area as well. Um, a great little boutique uh, cider company. And How's their cider? It's really, it's quite good, and they do a whole range. Um, so really, I encourage you to try it out, um, and it's a lot of fun to visit that farm as well. But their project was actually um, very riparian focused as well. I know it did some uh, restoration work on the waterfront there for salmon. And then what what does riparian mean for our guests that don't know the term? (laughs) Yes. So riparian is essentially relating to waterways. So it could be, you know, working on a creek or a stream all the way up to, um, you know, oceanfront riparian zones. So um, water areas for animals that rely upon them. And then it seems like salmon are definitely the watershed species that, you know, a lot of the work revolves around. Yes, a a great amount of it does um, for obvious reasons. You know, they are so imperiled right now and we can't possibly do enough uh, to restore their lands right now. Um, And it it is really a water watershed focus because what you do up on a mountain impacts the stream down the side. 
A lot so of the it, orca populations are not doing well, apparently, because the salmon species, that they, you know, who would know? It's a long food chain. Exactly. You know? yeah. um, so it's it's a very critical element. But, you know, salmon aren't the only ones. Um, you know, other water species, trout um, and native species are very important as well. Um, right down to, you know, <laughs> frogs and toads and turtles um, and making sure that, you know, their habitats, because it's all truly interconnected. Um, and, you know, what, what impacts native grasses impacts the turtles, and then that impacts the birds and the fish, and, you know, it's all connected, so it's really important. So when I grew up in Tacoma, we had, I would walk three blocks. It was an old um, horse stable, um, the winds, and then there was a place called China Creek, which was, again, undeveloped. I think it was a big bog kind of swamp area, but I spent many, many, many hours as a child kind of exploring that, and I remember all the frogs. You know, there were lots of amphibians, fish, all kinds of things. I don't know. You know, it seems that if you, you don't really hear a lot of frogs around the Pacific Northwest and urban areas anymore. So these are the places where they can survive. Exactly, and that's why some of the urban wildlife projects are so important, because they do keep those areas. So let's shift away from some of the places and more toward the people. So you mentioned earlier, like there are certain families that have inherited property, a lot of these kind of working lands, Mm -hmm. or maybe just other areas as well, where they don't want to sell it for development, but they have economic needs. Um, But that seems like a big group of people that sort of are involved in, you know, in contributing land. And then there's these community groups as well Mm -hmm. that sort of have a passion for a particular place. So... But I'm just kind of curious if you have any stories about these families that have inherited property and, you know. There's a lot of examples of that where, you know, there's that family connection to the land um, and wanting to see it, you know, maintained as a forest, maintained as a public resource and helping, you know, build that as a resource for future generations. I'm not sure if it's unique to Washington, but I think it's definitely something special um, where people have such a connection to nature here and they want to see it um, as a resource for future generations. So doing their part to help make sure that happens, Um, whether it's the landowner who's making that possible or whether it's the community stepping up and realizing, you know, if they don't act, they need to preserve that little piece of land so that it is a resource. So in the Illahi situation, there's a lot of, there's these developers that have purchased the land intending to develop it, and they're sort of caught in the middle, Yep. you know, and they have a sort of economic model, they're business people, and then they're oftentimes in conflict with these community groups that want to set aside that land for preservation, but then they end up become collaborators too when there's funding available. So exactly, it's just a really fascinating dynamic where you've got it's like so much tension among these different groups, but also when there's money, cooperation. So again, how does the coalition kind of step in to those situations like that where, and it seems like there's a crisis oftentimes that provoke the energy of the community groups because if they don't act, the land will not be preserved. It will be developed, right? Yep. Um, So the coalition, I wouldn't say necessarily is a direct actor in most of those situations. Usually um, we become aware of it when they apply for funding. Um, So it's really that, you know, the ability to find that grant funding to make this all possible where um, that is such a critical element and that's kind of our overarching role. Um, I know for my parents, it's like a godsend. It's like when this funding has has happened through the coalition, you know, through yep. your intervention, it's been like a miracle, you know, because yeah. these groups don't have a lot of money. 
because you're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars, sometimes millions of dollars exactly. to acquire this and land. So, you know, oftentimes it's, you know, a small community group that's doing this in their free time. And, you know, they're not nonprofit. They don't necessarily know these fundraising techniques. Uh, and even if they do, fundraising's challenging, especially when you're talking, you know, $5 million projects. And how's a, you know, small little, you know, mom and pop group that's passionate about the land going to make that happen? So really, you know, having that sustainable funding source is really critical. But also having people who are willing to think outside the box and collaborate. Um, one really interesting project, and it took years and years to make happen, I, 10, 20 years. Um, but it's up on Kitsap County, and it's Port Gamble. Uh, so it was uh, Timberland. It was owned by Pope Resources, um, and it was it was uh, taken land. You know, it was the land of the Port Gamble Sklalem tribe. Um, and they were displaced when actually the Pope family came to that area, settled and moved them so that they could have this timber industry. So there was that, you know, long history uh, there. You know, the tribe worked for the timber company. It was a collaborative process, but they'd also displaced them. But, you know, it came to the point where those lands weren't profitable for Pope Resources anymore. And they realized, you know, okay, well, we want to sell them, but should we just go out on the market and sell them? Or is there something better we can do with them? And by them, is that like the Port Gamble, the, where all the buildings are? Yes. Kind of that gateway into yep. the peninsula? Oh. Yeah. So again, I would encourage our guests to go through there if you haven't already. It's a fascinating kind of company town. Yep. It's very much a company town. It's uh, historic. It's preserved. Um by the company, actually. They uh, were very proactive in that to keep that feel of the early timber industry, which oddly enough was based on, you know, a New England town. So it feels it's almost weirdly, like New England. It does. It's cradle to grave. There's an infirmary and there's a cemetery, a general store, everything in between of a lifespan, right? They totally, yep. uh, you know, yeah. Exactly. So. And so in, as you drive there, you actually drive through a lot of forest land. And that was the land that was owned by Pope Resources, the timber company. And so they were able to work with, it was a large coalition of folks, but it included um, a long um, mediated process with the tribe as well to really, you know, think through how can we be doing this best. And it has resulted in some of the land Pope Resources needed, you know, they needed to get a certain amount of money out of it. We were talking, you know, th the landowners have financial needs. And so they needed to get, you know, a financial benefit out of selling these lands. But through working with partners, they were able to realize, well, what if we do one last harvest of these lands, replant them, but then sell them to you so that, you know, you're not selling the land with you know, a 50-year growth. A last bite of the apple. <laughs> exactly. So you're getting the financial benefit of that harvest and then the, the value of the land drops significantly. So you can then sell it at that value. Um, and, you know, they've replanted. They're going to help. They, they're training folks in terms of how to manage them moving forward. Will you those forest lands be harvested in the future? No. Um, no. So okay. they, they replanted them um, at least I don't believe so. I'm 90% certain. Um, but it's now public land. So it's it's owned by Kitsap County. Um, and so they have a forester who's managing them and working with uh, still with some expertise from Pope Resources to, you know, build those back up. And it's now a mountain bike <laughs> area. Um, so they're building trails, working with the local mountain bike organization doing that. 
Meanwhile, through the partnership with the tribe, they're also working on some waterfront restoration and reversing some of those ill effects of, you know, the timber being there on the waterfront and really helping to bring that holy place back to the tribe and restoring their connection. How long ago was that transaction, that sort of final transaction? Um, The final portion of that transaction was actually just a couple of years ago, Um, but it, it was a long process. Wow. Yep. And it's important to acknowledge that all of this land was obviously tribal land, and then it was taken mm-hmm. through treaties and wars and whatnot. And then we are we are today, in the last year, we've been really aware of kind of issues of equity, racial equity, socioeconomic equity, both in Seattle and across the country. Absolutely. Um, who gets to enjoy open spaces? And you know, how does equity get addressed kind of going forward? And how does that affect kind of the coalition's vision in terms of just creating more of that, which I assume is a shared value? Absolutely. Uh, um, it's definitely a shared value. And it, you know... It was intended as a value from the beginning. Um, you know, that's why there's such a diversity of projects, uh, making sure that, you know, all Washingtonians are able to benefit, whether it's, you know, a local park to wildlife habitat so that you have that access wherever you are. But I think our founders, some of them are still on our board and have grown along with us. Uh, you know, they were a product of their time. And, you know, they didn't realize what we've all come to learn in the last several years in terms of how our systems um, are racist in their roots. And, you know, the intent of having all Washingtonians, you know, have access to a park isn't enough. There has to be the systems in place to help make that happen. And so we're really, we're actually working right now on a review process um, in front of the legislature to look at these grant programs and analyze how are they failing, really, is what we're looking at. You know, we know they work well in some ways. Uh, You know, it's 1,400 projects, $1.5 billion invested. That's outstanding. Right. But we know that not all communities are being served and whether it's, you know, communities of color here in Seattle, looking at South Park that, you know, they have one park and it's, you know, desperately in need of renovation. It's a community named after as a park. Yes, <laughs> exactly. One, small one. <laughs> uh, so, you know, whether, you know, why is that? Why is that not happening? And how can it happen in an equitable way that doesn't then price out these residents. So once there's a park, their land values rise and they have to move. You know, we don't want that gentrification effect just because we, you know, they deserve access to a park and not to be priced out because of it. Just as a sidebar, what is the impact of a park in terms of the economic value of land, residential around it? Um, it definitely has an impact. It's a positive one. I mean, if, if you just think about as a, as a home buyer, if you're looking at where you want to live, having a local park always is a plus. Um, And especially if you have kids, having that playground for where they're going to play. So it definitely creates a boost in land values around it. And, you know, we all know that outdoor recreation, having that access to a park, having trails to walk on is critical to our mental and physical health. Right. It should be kind of a right, you know, it's particularly in the Pacific Northwest, right? Everyone should be able to get out of Exactly. Yeah. Um, You know, you shouldn't live in the Rainier Valley and, you know, you see Rainier and you've never visited. Um, and heaven forbid, you know, Rainier Valley doesn't have much um, parkland either. If you look at a, a map of the Seattle area and where the parks are, it has a very close correlation to the redlining. Huh. Um, so it's it's a historical problem that, um, you know, I know the city of Seattle wants to address. I know par- people in their parks department, but it's also a challenge. And, you know, it's one that they need to be addressing in a way that is equitable and, like I said, doesn't price out 
folks in those areas. And it's, it's a challenge. Um, and so we're looking at it from kind of the system side of things and how can these grant programs be better serving them, whether it's helping, you know, with the process, um, reducing the cost for communities, helping with community input. We're we, not sure of all of the solutions. Yeah, we, we were talking earlier, communities that have more resources tend to have people with more time to be able to devote to non-economic pursuits, you know, and therefore probably get better Exactly. Parks and you know open yep. spaces as a result. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's very much a you know, it, it's systemic. So if you think about you know why does it correlate with red line areas, it's because the people who live in the wealthier neighborhoods and the white neighborhoods, you know, historically and to today, you know, they tend to have more income. So they have, you know, maybe they're you know family that relies on one person working and, you know, somebody staying at home and maybe has a little bit more time to, you know, advocate for a park in their neighborhood. And they feel more empowered to advocate. You know, it's not even just the time front, but, you know, they feel like they have a voice and they should have a voice. And so they make sure that they have a voice. So it's layers of privilege um, that have led to these systems. And so we're really consciously trying to break down some of those and make sure that it's not just those who have that privilege, who have the access. Yeah, so I know in my neighborhood, there's Eli Park, there's this kind of movement to, there's this little marginal park where it's across the street from the Brook Gilman Trail in Northeast Seattle, but it's uh, also affordable housing community. Mm-hmm. And so I know the activists there that are looking to kind of create this more accessible park have involved a lot of the teens that actually live in the affordable housing project. and. Yes, you know. I just recently heard about that project, and it's it's not a WWRP project, no. but it could easily be. They need funding. <laughs> yep. Um, and I, th- one of the really cool things about that is, you know, the multiple elements of inclusivity there. Um, you know, it's low, low income, it's a community of color, but it's also, you know, they're building it as a physically inclusive park. It's really cool. Um, and those are just such special projects. Um, I really love those. It seems like a touchstone. A lot of this is just incredible uh, purchase from the stakeholders and the people that live there and, you know, benefit from them. So absolutely. Yeah. Another kind of issue with equity is just this cost of it. You know, state parks are expensive, you know, for people on a modest income. It's mm-hmm. not, you know, you have to pay money to use them. And it also costs a lot of money to maintain these places. Absolutely. And it's it's one of those challenges. Um, you know, the Discover Pass um, came to be as a result of really, you know, the last economic downturn and, you know, be- budgets being cut and them going, okay, well, we have to, you know, keep operations up somehow. Um, and, you know, there's been a huge boom in this last year in demand on parks. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know the answer. It's, it's a more sustainable, there's a need for more sustainable funding for all of our natural resource agencies. And we're working with partners to look at what is that source? How do we make it more sustainable? You know, the budget for these organizations is a fraction of the budget. It's it's like 2.5% of the state budget. But the amount of good that they do for our state is so much greater. Um, Even economically, it attracts people into the state when there's beautiful place. You know, that's yep. why people come here, actually. Washington actually has a $26.5 billion outdoor recreation economy. And it provides more jobs than aerospace or the technology industry. And it's all sustainable. Exactly. You know, not, yeah. So, well, good. So I ask all of our guests to share a place that matters to them. You've mentioned the Longfellow Creek area. Mm-hmm. It'd be interesting to hear a, a non-natural uh, place that you absolutely love that's in the Pacific Northwest, if you're willing to 
think about that. Absolutely. Um, And this is actually an easy one for me um, because it combines many of the things we've already been talking about. Uh, And it's not in the Seattle area. It's a little bit of a drive, but it's well worth the visit because there's lots of other things to do there. But it's in Wenatchee. Um, And this particular project is in South Wenatchee, um, which if you know Wenatchee at all, it's a migrant community who've come to Wenatchee to work on the, you know, apple farms and the cherry farms who settled in that neighborhood. It's very heavily Mexican, lower income. But they had a little a, a park. They had an existing park. Um, the it's called Mahau Park, um, but it just wasn't serving the community. You know, it had a it had a cracked basketball court and you know a little playground. Mind you, being a, a Mexican community, they much preferred soccer over basketball. I understand you're you're <laughs> big into soccer as well. I am. I am a <laughs> soccer supporter. <laughs> um, so that definitely spoke to me. But um, you know they. The community, it was their gathering place, and it's where they went and played. And, you know, it was a rite of passage for kids to climb the tree and get to the top. So it was always the center of their community, but it just wasn't necessarily serving the community. And so through a special partnership with the city, with uh, the Trust for Public Lands, um, as well as community members, they really centered the community in this project and brought them together to ask what they wanted out of their park. It's now a true heart to the community. Um, they have a kiosco, which if you visited Mexico, that's kind of, it's the center of every public park down there. And it's, you know, w- looking at it as an American, you know, you look at it and it's like, oh, okay, you know, it's a little gazebo, but it's not. It's it's a cultural icon for them and it's the center place and it's where they gather. Musicians um, perform, I would imagine. Exactly. Yeah. Musicians perform. Um, they have a community dance group that practices there. And so they built that. The community actually literally came together to help um, create a mosaic in that kiosk as well and to build those designs. They have a community garden there now. It's a gathering place for a little market as well to help build the economy there. Um, they actually, the community group partnered with the local community college to get um, education for some of these, you know, Small mom and pop, you know, whether they're making, they have a taco truck or, you know, they have, uh, you know, some arts and crafts, that kind of thing to get them educated in terms of business practices so that they can have a little farmer's market in their park. And of course, a soccer field, um, (laughs) a small sided soccer field for the kids. And it's, it is what the community wanted. It's what represents the community but it's also giving back to the community um, through that, through their own little farm plots, through this farmer's market that they're able to have, bringing people in and introducing them um, and helping, you know, build equity. And it's also built the community voice. This group that I've mentioned, the community group that started out focused on just how should we develop this park? They're called the Parque Padrinos, the, the godparents of the park. Uh-huh. Um, it's now an active community group. They're working on getting a 501c3 nonprofit status. Um, they did voter registration drives. They've been doing outreach around COVID and really getting you know the word out on what folks should be doing. Um, they have a little booth at the park, I think, once a week to help with the education. And they've brought people, you know, they've engaged them in the commu- in the city government as well in ways that never would have happened if it hadn't started with this impetus around the park. Wow. Okay, well, this would be on the top of your post-pandemic travel list. Absolutely. I'll I'll, I'll definitely go check it out myself. Thank you. Absolutely. Very exciting. 
To learn more about Christine's organization, the Washington Wildlife and Recreation Coalition, you can go to wildliferecreation.org. Join us next time, and we'll shift the conversation from cougars to cobblestone. We'll be joining Marga Rose Hancock and Rosalie Daggett of the Queen Anne Historical Society for a look inside one of Seattle's very lovely neighborhoods, from the littlest cottages to the grandest mansions. You won't want to miss that episode. Thank you for joining us for EK on the Go. Subscribe anywhere you get your podcast. And if you have a place that matters to you and want to share it, please get in touch. Until then, this is Edward Krigsman. Take care. <laughs>